Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 30th of September for the listening week that begins October 1st. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey, and this week I'll be opening with some articles from sources new to this program via URL Media. And first I'll read an article that was originally posted January 26th for pointer.org. This was written by Kristen Hare. URL Media is turning one. Here's what it accomplished in supporting black and brown newsrooms. S. Mitra Kalita and Sarah Lomax Reese share what's changed and what's ahead. S. Mitra Kalita and Sarah Lomax Reese had this moment when they knew they had to build something with existing newsrooms, not remake them or start new. Kalita told Pointer's Mel Grau last October. There was yet another piece about a mainstream news outlet and racism it was contending with in its top ranks. I called Sarah. We had seen enough of that at that point. I remember one of us said, we have to do something and the moment is now. That was July 2020. By January 2021, the former Senior Vice President for News, Opinion, and Programming for CNN Digital, Kalita, and the CEO-slash-President of Word Radio in Philadelphia, that was Lomax Reese, launched URL Media. URL stands for Uplift, Respect, and Love. And URL Media's, pardon me, URL's homepage describes their work as, quote, a decentralized multi-platform network of high-performing black and brown media organizations. We'll share content, distribution, and other resources to enhance reach, expand revenue, and build long-term sustainability. URL Media launched one year ago today via email I asked the founders about the last year, starting with what's changed since they first gathered eight network member newsrooms. Lomax Reese said, In the world, we are seeing deeper, more sophisticated ways of dividing the country along racial lines. The Virginia governor's race was a blueprint for how to mobilize white voters around the issue of critical race theory. Dog whistles are real. We are seeing increased restrictions on voting rights as we head into the 2022 midterm elections, and COVID fatigue seems to be numbing out the country 
just when we need to be energized to fight for reproductive rights, voting, health care, education, and everything. This is why URL and the work of all of our BIPOC media partners is absolutely critical now. We need diverse, trusted voices to chronicle the truth of our present reality. In URL Media's first year, it held a monthly roundtable called Meet the BIPOC Press on The Laura Flanders Show, which airs on 280 public television stations, grew to keep, pardon me, grew to help its members with coaching and talent development, added two more newsrooms, Sahan Journal and Native News Online, got the network's newsrooms on Apple News, which is something mainstream newsrooms have taken for granted for years to reach masses, said Kalita. Our BIPOC newsrooms don't always have the developers or audience managers to enable this, so this one felt like a real feat. Among URL's ten newsrooms, there's also a common thread of generosity and openness, said Lomax Reese. Kalita, who is the founder and publisher of Epicenter NYC, one of their sources, agreed. I often joke that our members are the same because we all grew up with extra relatives living in our basement and strangers showing up at the dinner table. I say this because a spirit of generosity runs through every single one of our newsrooms. When I think about what we represent to our communities in this deadly pandemic, that has disproportionately sickened us, killed us even, I get choked up. There's a sameness there, but also a singularity and customization by community and platform. In its second year, URL Media is hiring, working to grow advertising and sponsorship revenue and to add members. I asked the two founders what we should all learn from the newsrooms URL Media works with. I think all of our partners center and prioritize service to their audiences, said Lomax Reese. This is a relatively new trend in mainstream journalism right now, but this is a fundamental, pardon me, this is fundamental and foundational for our BIPOC media organizations, and this has been at the center of black media throughout history, starting as early as 1827, when the first black newspaper, Freedom's Journal, was launched to advocate for the humanity of enslaved Africans. Our business models are intimately connected to service, filling gaps that exist not just in the media, but in society. And once again, that anniversary was celebrated this January 2022. And from their partners, I have a couple of articles to offer today. From scalawagmagazine.org, written by Sierra Lyons. This was posted August 17th, 2022. From their race and place category, I grew up against a backdrop of white evangelical power. Florida's new CRT ban means even more black students will, too. 
The same history that's now illegal to teach in many schools is repeating itself. Editors note this is the third story in our Schooled series about how adults are failing this generation of students. My path through a private Christian school in Florida offered me a front-row seat to the far-reaching power of white evangelicals over freedom of expression and facts. As critical race theory bans sweep the nation, I've been back in that familiar, uncomfortable place that marked my time at my alma mater, a sentiment that is likely to be the norm now as Florida and other states model public schools after whitewashed private ones like mine. Among the many disturbing bills introduced during the 2022 Florida legislative session was HB 7, the, quote, Individual Freedom Bill, also known as the Stop Woke Act. The sweeping law restricts conversations on race, color, sex of national, oh, pardon me, that's sex or national origin in K through 12 and at public universities, isolating non-white and LGBTQ plus youth in particular. The bill signed into law on April 22nd is also the first of its kind to limit race discussions among state employees under a critical race theory ban. The law prohibits lessons that cause anyone to feel guilt or anguish for, quote, actions committed in the past by other members of the same race, color, sex, or national origin. Republicans have weaponized critical race theory, or CRT, as a rallying cry, a catch-all for anything related to race, and not what it actually is, a college-level framework for understanding our society. The vague language of the law is confusing, especially for teachers, who are now required to be neutral or objective in their classrooms. By law, they're required to shy away from anything that might make a student feel guilty about their race's role in racism in the nation. But what that actually means is anyone's guess. The law has blurred the lines for freedom of speech for professors at public universities who actually teach CRT, but have been banned from doing so at the risk of their institutions facing large financial penalties. And it's not the only learning ban in March, lawmakers passed HB 1467, giving parents in Florida the ability to limit and ban library books and curriculum that they deem inappropriate. White fundamentalists and evangelicals have been major supporters and influencers of laws like these that model public institutions after their private ones. Under CRT bans, public schools will have a lot in common with my private Christian school, where leaders avoided conversations of racism and rejected any pursuit of justice. I spent years unpacking trauma from school, and I'm not alone in that experience. As a black woman, I know too well that the separation of church and state has been enforced primarily as a matter of convenience. More of you should be concerned, too. Religious entities waded into the CRT debate in the months following the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, 
and the ensuing uprisings. In November of 2020, the presidents of Southern Baptist Convention's six seminaries, all white men, issued a statement proclaiming that the affirmation of critical race theory, intersectionality, and any version of critical theory is incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. SBC President J.D. Greer added, The gospel gives a better answer. Christianity has been used to uphold institutionalized white supremacy from chattel slavery to school segregation, including in evangelical private schools. It's actually how many of them got their start. Two years after the Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka ruling desegregated U.S. public schools at all deliberate speed, white segregationists formed a massive resistance to keep black kids out. In 1956, Virginia Senator Harry Flood Byrd Sr., a Democrat, authored the Southern Manifesto on Integration, pledging to use all lawful means to reverse Brown v. Board. If we can organize the southern states for massive resistance to this order, I think that in time the rest of the country will realize that racial integration is not going to be accepted in the South, Byrd said then. Nearly one-fifth of Congress signed on to the manifesto, which sought to prevent schools from integrating and use the courts to punish those that did. Although these lawmakers represented a minority in Congress, the southern states they represented followed suit. For instance, the school district in Prince Edward County, Virginia, shuttered all of its public schools for five years instead of integrating. In addition to increased violence against and criminalization of black Southerners, like the white mob that threatened 12 black students with guns for integrating a Mansfield, Texas school in 1956, these anti-integration strategies ushered in a surge of private Christian schools, segregation academies, seg academies as they are known, often operated under Christian churches and acted as a shield for white parents and children who refused to grapple with the reality of race and integration. Many popped up in the early 1970s, following the subsequent 1969 Supreme Court ruling Alexander v. Holmes County Board of Education, which addressed Brown's all-deliberate speed clause and required integration immediately. By 1958, the South's private school enrollment had exploded, increasing by more than 250,000 students over an eight-year period, and boasting almost one million students in 1965, quotes, according to a report from the Southern Education Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting equity for low-income and students of color in the South. And while many institutions claimed to be an effort to combat secularism, their primary function was to continue the apartheid in education. Christian schools were once the conservative answer to circumvent integration, and scholars point to the resistance to integrate evangelical schools as the foundation for the influence of conservative politics 
over-education policy today. Around the same time as the Holmes decision, the Supreme Court issued an important ruling in another case, Green v. Connolly, which many credit with emboldening the religious right as we know it. The 1971 ruling stalled federal tax exemptions for private schools that refused black students. Within months, Bob Jones University, an evangelical college whose founder said the Bible supported racial segregation, received an IRS notice. For years, the school tried to skirt around the IRS requirements, like when it only allowed married black students to avoid race mixing. By 1976, it lost its tax exemption status. In 2000, Jones III announced on Larry King Live that the university would be lifting its interracial dating ban. To this day, the South Carolina-based school remains overwhelmingly white, and its conservative curriculum is taught in many private schools throughout the nation. In fact, most private Christian schools still educate relatively homogeneous, majority-white student bodies and employ majority-white faculties. The National Center for Education Statistics, which is housed within the Department of Education, found that 66% of private school students were white, compared to 55% of students in U.S. public schools. Although private schools educate a small proportion of U.S. students, as of 2019, 9% of U.S. students attended private school, their commitment to whiteness does irreparable harm to the non-white students in their midst. Among the 4.7 million private school attendees in grades K-12, through 12% were Hispanic and 9% were black. In contrast, 28% of public school students were Hispanic and 15% there were black. Still, despite efforts to desegregate public education, many public school houses are highly segregated and increasingly so. And now the curriculum taught to the majority of this nation's children's stands to be just as whitewashed. I have lived experience with the lasting harm of learning ahistorical accounts from white teachers as I sat next to my white peers at my Christian private school. My concern is that HB 7 and similar laws essentially turn public schools into private ones where black history has long been informally banned under white evangelical rule. Anti-CRT laws are now on the books in 42 states and are primed to recreate the white evangelical education model that whitewashes history and fosters environments that leave black kids like me with years of trauma to unpack. The same history now that's illegal to teach in many schools is repeating itself. At age eight, I first walked into third grade, I encountered a student body and faculty who were majority white. Coming from a majority black public schools in Pensacola, this shift was a bit of a culture shock. My only goal was to continue to love school and make friends as easily as I did at my public school. Instead, I got a lesson on racial capitalism. My parents paid the expensive tuition out of pocket for my sister and I, 
because they believed that a Christian school would be a safer environment for us. They worked really hard to make this possible, and if they ever struggled financially, they hid it well. In this environment, my peers were hyper-fixated on money, as private schools still achieve a blend of the haves and the have-nots who attend through scholarships or discounted rates if their parents worked for the school or affiliated church. This is where I learned that we were solidly middle class, compounded with being one of just a few black kids, my white peers flexing their larger homes and designer accessories made me feel less than. I felt that my best method for survival was to distance myself from how I interacted with my peers in public schools and partake in the hyperfixation of materialism. In hindsight, Assimilating to the culture of the school cost me parts of my identity, like using black vernacular and being more open in expressing my love for black culture that I gained back only in this past year, after I left their church and cut ties with them altogether after 13 years. My school used the Association of Christian Schools International Curriculum, ASCI, no, that's, pardon me, that's A-C-S-I. The largest non-Catholic Christian school association in the U.S., A-S-C-I, was, pardon me again, that's A-C-S-I, A-C-S-I, was founded in 1978, and as of September 2019, more than half of their member schools have student bodies that are at least 80% white. For the small percentage of racial minorities who do attend private Christian schools, I know what it feels like to be ostracized not only by my peers and teachers, but also by whitewashed curricula and inter interpretations of the gospel. Many black students at these largely white institutions aren't accustomed to religion being enforced by white teachers and pastors. Their religious and spiritual lives have usually been protected and shepherded by black leaders. As Rev. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said almost 70 years ago, Sunday mornings are still the most segregated hour in Christian America. Alexa Mercado, who is Puerto Rican and black, attended Christian schools for her K-12 education in Orlando during the early and mid-2000s. She didn't have a single teacher of color until 10th grade, as there was only one, she said. At the time, I didn't see an issue with it, because when you're in something, you don't think about it that deeply until you're out, and you're like, hmm, that's not right. And then talking to my friends who were at public school, and they had teachers who looked like them or can relate to them on certain issues. I didn't really get that experience or have any representation of that throughout any of the staff members at the school. Mercado's first time at a public school was Valencia College in Orlando. That transition wasn't an easy one, she said. I actually put off college for a whole entire year because being in a private Christian school, the space was so small, so it gave me a lot of anxiety to be in a place with so many different people who have so many different beliefs, said Mercado. When I finally went, it was a shock to see so many different kinds of people whether that be the faculty and staff or just the students in general. My middle school history teacher used her classrooms 
as an opportunity to promote many of her own opinions and beliefs, many of which were ahistorical. I recall her overemphasizing that the Civil War wasn't about slavery, but states' rights versus federal rights. Southern states' steadfastness to allow the ownership of humans was the proverbial elephant in the room that she somehow failed to address. Her jurisdiction to teach what she thought was important was a huge red flag in hindsight. But I was also just a child in her room without the knowledge I have now. Instead of using the available textbooks, she printed out worksheets that she found to be relevant to our lectures. I also remember challenging her viewpoints on President Barack Obama. She made a point to express her disdain for him and his politics on numerous occasions after she told us about a big fight she had with her brother, who supported Obama, while watching one of the presidential debates in 2012. Yet I often didn't feel empowered to speak up when I vehemently disagreed with her and her politics out of fear of being seen as disrespectful. By the time eighth grade rolled around for me, I was eager to return to public school and was happy that my season of private school was done. But my connection to the institution wasn't over. My family and I continued to attend the church that ran the school throughout my high school and college years. It wasn't until last January, when I was 21, that I felt it was my time to part with the church after repeatedly calling out racism to the lead pastors who were majority white, they met my demands with passivity and menial efforts that vaguely addressed racism but never specifically repented for their part in upholding an unbalanced church culture that made many of their black parishioners feel erased and uncomfortable. After attending a community college in my hometown, I applied to only one university adamant about attending Florida A&M University, an HBCU in my state's capital. Even if it was only for two years, I longed to attend an institution where the professors and students' shared experience of blackness was not seen as something to be checked at the door, but worthy of celebration and acceptance. Put frankly, private Christian schools weren't created for black students, and there are hundreds of thousands of black students over the years that have felt that sense of unbelonging and internalized it. And school choice laws mean this dynamic will continue. In June, the Supreme Court ruled in Carson v. Macon that school voucher programs must include religious schools as an option, further blurring this country's separation of church and state for the benefit of white families. School voucher programs use public money to send kids to private schools as a fixture of the school choice movement. The Association of Christian Schools International, which governs my private school's curriculum, supports this, quote, freedom to choose, accepting public money for privatized education. This sneakily continues segregation under the guise of protecting a freedom to choose a less black school, for instance, it's the same individual freedom laws like HB 7 cling to today, mirroring the fundamentalists and evangelicals that run many Southern private schools and religious institutions. Being a black Christian in this nation often means 
pushing back against attempts from white evangelicals and fundamentalists to speak for all Christians or to shroud their harm in Scripture. In the words of Psalm 106.3, I speak out for those students who have gone on to adulthood still wounded by an institution that proclaimed Christ while rejecting those that were made in his image. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. At this point, I'm going to move to some news briefs. This one comes from CNN Entertainment. I'm not sure I have a date on this. September 30th. The Daily Show host Trevor Noah has announced he will step away from the anchor desk. In a video statement shared on Twitter Thursday, Noah said that after seven years as host of Comedy Central's satirical news program, his time is up. It's been absolutely amazing. It's something that I never expected, said Noah of his experience hosting the show. I found myself thinking throughout the time of everything we've gone through, the Trump presidency, the pandemic, just the journey, more pandemic, and I realize that after the seven years, my time is up. Noah, a stand-up comedian from South Africa, was a relative newcomer to American audiences when he was named as host of The Daily Show after Jon Stewart signed off in 2015. I want to say thank you to you, to you who watched this, said Noah. I never dreamed that I would be here. I sort of feel like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I came here for a tour of what the previous show was, and then, the next thing you know, I was handed the keys. Noah hinted that his decision to leave the show is rooted in his desire to return to more stand-up work. I spent two years in my apartment, not on the road, and when I got back out there, I realized there's another part of my life out there that I want to carry on exploring. I miss learning the leg oh, pardon me, I miss learning other languages. I miss going to other countries and putting on shows, he said. He expressed his gratitude to his viewers, the Daily Show team, and to Comedy Central, who believed in this random comedian nobody knew on this side of the world. I've loved hosting this show. It's been one of my greatest challenges and one of my greatest joys, he said. I've loved trying to find a way to make people laugh, even when the stories are particularly shitty. Even on the worst days, we've laughed together, we've cried together. He did not share when his final show would be, but said he'd still be around for a while. He said, don't worry, I'm not disappearing. If I owe you money, I'll still pay you. And reading next from theroot.com. This was posted Wednesday, the 28th. NAACP says Mississippi officials violated Jackson residents' civil rights. On Tuesday, the NAACP filed a federal complaint alleging that Mississippi officials' neglect of Jackson's water infrastructure all but assured the crisis. The boil water advisory in Jackson, Mississippi may have been lifted earlier this month, but the NAACP is refusing to let Mississippi officials off the hook for their role in the city's water crisis. On Tuesday, the NAACP filed a federal complaint with the Environmental Protection Agency 
alleging that Mississippi's mishandling of Jackson's water crisis violated residents' right, rights pardon me, under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Everyone deserves safe, clean drinking water. In 2022, there is no excuse as to why our government cannot provide the necessary infrastructure to ensure that all of its residents have access to this basic human right said NAACP President and CEO Derek Johnson in a statement. He went on, The residents of Jackson, Mississippi, a predominantly black community, have suffered at the hands of discriminatory state leadership for far too long. To bring everyone up to speed on the crisis in August, heavy rainfall overwhelmed one of the city's two water treatment plants, causing the entire water system to shut down. So, for weeks, residents were without running water to drink, bathe, wash their dishes, or brush their teeth. It wasn't until mid-September that the state officially ended the boil water advisory, signaling that the water should be clean enough to use again. Unfortunately for the residents of Jackson, 82% of whom are black, this isn't the first incident leading to shutdowns or unsafe drinking water. Last year, a winter storm knocked out the city's water supply, leading to a similar crisis. More recently, Jackson residents filed a civil class action lawsuit alleging that for decades the water has not been fit for human consumption due to elevated levels of lead. And on Monday, the Department of Justice threatened to take action against the city of Jackson for violating the Safe Water Drinking Act due to the regular harmful substances found in its tap water, according to the AP Press. Over the last two years, roughly 300 boil water notices have been issued in Jackson, according to the complaint. The NAACP says the blame for these crises lies squarely with Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves and the state of Mississippi's racially discriminatory infrastructure funding practices. They allege that Reeves' racist funding policies stood in the way of necessary infrastructure repairs that could have prevented these repeated crises. Instead of giving funds to Jackson, the complaint alleges that the state prioritized, quote, smaller, majority white communities with less acute needs. For his part, Republican Governor Reeves has blamed the crisis on city officials, saying that they already had enough funding to fix the water systems. However, Jackson Mayor Chokwe A. Lumumba says that the city has received nowhere near the amount of money Reeves claims, according to local ABC News affiliate. Regardless of who holds the greatest responsibility for this crisis, the NAACP complaint makes clear that what's happened in Jackson is a part of a much bigger issue. The water crisis in Jackson is just the latest example of negligence, if not racist, pattern of underfunding basic water services for black communities, wrote Aubrey Connor, NAACP's Director of Environmental and Climate Justice, in a statement, and he concluded, Make no mistake, this is nothing new. And this next one, still from TheRoot.com, written by Keith Reed, posted on the 28th. Democrats are betting on black voters to help hold the Senate. 
Concerned about keeping Biden from becoming a lame duck, the party is doubling down on black folks. Are we surprised? With control of the U.S. Senate and thus the fate of the Biden presidential agenda teetering on the results of the midterm elections, the Democratic Party is pouring resources into convincing black voters to go to the polls in November. Black voters have long been the Democrats' most reliable constituency, but voter numbers overall tend to slump, particularly among the party in the majority, in congressional midterm elections. Democrats took control of the legislative branch of government at the same time that President Joe Biden was elected, largely based on campaign pledges to black voters. Now they hope to keep those numbers from dropping, especially in races in key swing states, officials told The Root. The midterm election will decide the future of our country, and in Senate battleground states, Democrats are working to meet this moment with early investments to reach black voters in the most comprehensive and effective ways, said Democrat Senatorial Campaign Committee Chairman Gary Peters. He went on, black voters understand we cannot afford to hand power back to Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans, and they are motivated to participate in the election to elect Senate Democrats. Whether that prediction comes true won't be known until November, and it could determine the balance of power in government. The Democratic Senate Campaign Committee is specifically focused on races in Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The committee is pumping cash into the efforts from its $3 million Defend the Majority effort that it launched last year. It's hosting candidate meet and greets with members of Divine Nine Greek letter organizations and hiring new staff to coordinate outreach and help drive voters to the polls. In Georgia, a state where the Pew Research Center found that black voters accounted for more than half of new voter registrations since the year 2000, incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock is battling to keep his seat from Republican nominee Herschel Walker. In North Carolina, the party recently spent $100,000 on a voter registration drive targeting black voters in the Rocky Mount area, about 45 miles east of Raleigh. Sherry Beasley, who was the first black chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, is polling slightly behind Republican Ted Budd, a re pardon me, Representative Ted Budd, a Republican who describes himself as a, quote, Trump-endorsed liberal agenda crusher on his campaign website. That race is considered critical for Democrats because it's a chance to flip a seat held by a retiring Republican and because Beasley would be only the third black woman ever elected to the U.S. Senate. Next, I turn to the Saturday, September 24th edition of the Daily Camera for an amended autopsy report. McLean died due to sedative, comma, restraint. This comes from the Associated Press, writ written by Colleen Slevin, Dateline, Denver. A black man died after a police encounter in the Denver suburb in a 2000, 
pardon me, in 2019 because he was injected with a powerful sedative after being forcibly restrained. According to an amended autopsy report publicly released Friday, despite the finding, the death of Elijah McLean, a 23-year-old massage therapist, was still listed as undetermined, not a homicide, the report shows. McLean was put in a neck hold and injected with ketamine after being stopped by police in Aurora for, quote, being suspicious. He was unarmed. The original autopsy report that was written soon after his death in August of 2019 did not reach a conclusion about how he died or what type of death it was, such as if it was natural, accidental, or a homicide. That was a major reason why prosecutors initially decided not to pursue charges. But a state grand jury last year indicted three officers and two paramedics on manslaughter and reckless homicide charges in McLean's death after the case drew renewed attention following the killing of George Floyd in 2020. It became a rallying cry during the national reckoning over racism and police brutality. The five accused have not yet entered pleas, and their lawyers have not commented publicly on the charges. The findings of the amended autopsy report updated in July 2021 echo an opinion included in the grand jury indictment handed down about two months later from an unspecified pathologist who concluded McLean died of complications of being injected with ketamine, a sedative, while being violently subdued and restrained by law enforcement and emergency responders. It is not clear whether that pathologist is the same one, Dr. Stephen Cena, who updated the autopsy report. In the new updated report, Cena concluded that the ketamine dosage given to McLean, which was higher than recommended for someone his size, quote, was too much for this individual and it resulted in an overdose. Even though his blood ketamine level was consistent with a therapeutic blood concentration. He also said he could not rule out that metabolic changes in McLean's blood due to exertion during his restraint contributed to his death and that there was no evidence that injuries inflicted by police caused his death. I believe that Mr. McLean would most likely be alive but for the administration of ketamine, said Cena who noted that body camera footage shows McLean becoming extremely sedated within a few minutes of being given the drug. Cena acknowledged that other reasonable pathologists with different experience and training may have labeled such a death while in police custody as a homicide or accident, but that he believes the appropriate classification is undetermined. Kusser Mohamedbai pardon me, attorney for McLean's mother, Shanine McLean, declined a request for comment. The updated autopsy was released Friday under a court order in a lawsuit brought by Colorado Public Radio, CPR, joined by other media organizations, including the Associated Press. CPR sued the coroner to release the report after learning it had been updated, arguing that it should be made available under the state's public records law. Coroner Monica 
Broncusia, Jordan, said she could not release it because it contained confidential grand jury information and that releasing it would violate the oath she made not to share it when she obtained it last year. But Adams County District Judge Kyle Seedorf ordered the coroner to release the updated report by Friday and a Denver judge who oversees grand jury proceedings. Christopher Bonham ruled Thursday that grand jury information did not have to be redacted from the updated report. McLean's death fueled renewed scrutiny about the use of ketamine and led Colorado's Health Department to issue a new rule limiting when emergency workers can use it. Last year, the city of Aurora agreed to pay $15 million to settle a lawsuit brought by McLean's parents. Police reform activist Candace Bailey had mixed emotions about seeing the amended autopsy and said, I do believe that it does get us a step closer to anything that is a semblance of justice. She's an activist in the city of Aurora who has led demonstrations over the death of McLean. But Bailey added that she is extremely saddened that there is still a controversy around whether or not the EMTs and officers should be held responsible for what they did and as to whether or not this was actually murder. Moving back again to an article from our newer sources via URL. This one comes from blackvoicenews.com, BVN, written by Brianna Reeves. It was posted September 6th. Long-haul COVID in the Black Community. The University of California Riverside's Center for Health, pardon me, Healthy Communities, CHC, hosted the first town hall of many on the topic of long-haul COVID-19 on August 30th at the Barbara and Art Culver Center of the Arts. This first town hall in a series to focus on symptoms of long-haul COVID the presentation was moderated by Michelle C. Burroughs. Burroughs stated, As many of you know, a significant percentage of black slash African Americans are still unvaccinated. These town halls will offer practices that mitigate the spread of the virus and long-haul COVID-19. Long-haul COVID is a condition that refers to long-term physical and mental health effects that are present four or more weeks after initial COVID-19 infection. Long-haul COVID has many names, including long COVID, post-COVID, and post-acute sequelae SARS-CoV-2 infection that goes by PASC. People who experience long COVID may exhibit many different symptoms, pardon me, including fatigue, brain fog, and chest pain. Research on long COVID is still ongoing, which has made diagnosing the condition difficult for providers and even more difficult for individuals to receive recognition. While it is hard to say for sure, researchers and public health officials estimate that 27 million Americans suffer from long COVID. There's not enough evidence to tell us how long a person could experience long COVID. Additionally, every individual is different, said Dr. Penny, 
in response to a question posed by a community member. Some individuals report experiencing long COVID for two months after they recovered from the initial infection, while others can experience long COVID for a longer period of time. During her presentation, Dr. Penny stated that among the estimated 213,000 who suffer from long COVID in Riverside County, 8,000 identify as black. Black long haulers feel unheard. Kevin Booker explained that he initially contracted COVID-19 and then experienced COVID-related pneumonia one month later, which lasted about four months. Booker explained to Dr. Penny that he has been unsuccessful in getting his doctor to understand his symptoms and address his health concerns. It feels like when I come in the room, most of the time he talks, and if I interrupt, he kind of talks over me. That's what I'm experiencing now. What direction do I go when I'm experiencing this right now? I just feel like I'm unheard, said Booker as he recalled his visit with a workman's compensation doctor. Dr. Penny recommended that Booker get a second opinion and determine if a diagnosis was missed. She explained that there is now a diagnostic code for providers to clinically diagnose patients with long COVID. Long COVID now recognized as a disability. In July 2021, long COVID was recognized as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. The Department of Health and Human Services issued a guidance that details why long COVID meets the criteria of a disability. Booker shared a row along with his wife, Denise Booker, who explained that they both contracted the Delta variant and had fevers of 103 back in 2021. She said she still experiences the effects of COVID, such as being very forgetful and having poor equilibrium. It's frustrating listening to him when he has to talk to the doctors, she said. I went to the doctor afterwards because my equilibrium was also off, and they told me as well, it'll pass. Don't worry about it, it'll pass, said Booker. Well, it hasn't passed. We had it in 21. Okay, so what do we do at this point? The Bookers are not alone in feeling unheard or dismissed when it comes to having a provider recognize and acknowledge their symptoms as long COVID. Black female long COVID activists like Chimery L. Smith from Maryland and Ivanka Hall of Ohio are fighting for recognition of long COVID among black communities. On August 24, 2021, the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, AAPMNR, released the first dashboard that displays how many millions of Americans are estimated to be experiencing long COVID symptoms. AMPMNR estimates that, oh, pardon me, estimates are developed based on the assumption that 30% of the population who survived an initial case of COVID-19 suffers from long COVID. They estimate that more than 27 million Americans suffer from long COVID. California has the highest estimate of long COVID cases among the states with an estimate of 3 million. Being your own best advocate, 
for long COVID care. Community members who attended the town hall had questions about how they can advocate on behalf of themselves when it comes to having providers acknowledge long COVID. There are a lot of long COVID providers. That's the unfortunate reality today. Oh, pardon me. That's, there are not a lot of long COVID providers, which is the unfortunate reality today. But we are getting better, Dr. Penny acknowledged. However, she encouraged members of the audience to seek a second opinion from other providers, ask questions, and keep documentations about visits and testing. During the presentation, Dr. Penny and Whitmore also addressed misinformation about COVID-19 boosters and vaccines that audience members may have received. Both public health officials emphasized the importance of getting a booster shot, regardless if an individual has contracted COVID-19 or not. Whitmore recommended that people continue to wear masks and practice good hygiene to reduce the likelihood of contracting COVID-19 and therefore contracting long COVID. As more information is learned about long COVID, Riverside County has worked to understand who is impacted by conducting post-COVID follow-up calls to individuals who reported positive COVID-19 test results. There is currently no medication that specifically treats long COVID, but those who are experiencing long COVID can find support and resources by visiting the county's resource page. Now this is specifically for the Riverside, California community, but it has information that could help everyone. So that is found at www.rivcoph. That stands for Riverside COVID public health, or perhaps Riverside County, but once again, that's R-I-V-C-O-P-H dot O-R-G slash coronavirus slash treatment. And that brings me close to the end of our time, so... I will close with that. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Network for Good. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.